This morning's New Testament reading comes from Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 29. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the, <clears throat> they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is, ba is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, it's a privilege that we can gather together as your people to sit at your feet, Lord Jesus, and to hear your words to your church, and it's a privilege to know the presence of your Holy Spirit who can make these things plain to us. And so we pray that you grant, us, uh, grant to us all here today illumination of mind and heart, but especially, Lord, give us the desire and the will and the power to obey. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this place, oh, Lord, may they be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our only redeemer. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're listening to the passage today, which I trust that you were as, as Micah read it, it seems greatly ironic, doesn't it, that on Reformation Sunday, uh, we should land on this text in our sermon series that says this. It's not um, the hearers of the law but it's the doers of the law that are justified. <laughs> that seems greatly ironic to me, at least. The Reformation was all about naked trust in the mercy of God. It's all about naked trust in the mercy 
of God. Luther in his uh, Heidelberg uh, Disputation says this, he says, it's impossible to trust God unless one has despaired in all the creatures. It's impossible. For the reformers, true faith meant true despair. Despair of your best work. Despair of your best morals. Despair of anything that you can bring to God. Despair even of your piety and your devotion, which you realize under God and under his law is also corrupt. The law, writes Luther, leads us into hell. And it shows us what poor people we are and how sinful we are in all of our works, even the most righteous ones, just as the Apostle Paul does in Romans 2 and in Romans 3. Despite what this passage might look like on the surface, Luther's right. In Romans 2, Paul leads us into hell. And so today's one of those days that you can justifiably say in your way out, well, that was hell, um, and uh, uh, in, in the right kind of sense. In one of the, uh, the British uh, home building shows that Heather and I like to watch, one of the episodes dealt with these homes that were on a seaside, and they were in imminent danger because the persistent motion of the waves had been slowly over time eroding the material beneath the foundations. Year after year after year, and the houses became more precarious in their position. Pounding wave after pounding wave had undermined all that would keep those houses stable. And this is precisely what the Apostle Paul is doing in Romans 2 and 3, in a much shorter frame of time. Paul is undermining. Paul is destabilizing. Paul is removing any support that we might offer in terms of our deliverance, in terms of our salvation from God's judgment. And before Paul will exalt us with the word of grace, Paul will humble us with the word of the law. And that's really the pattern of evangelism, isn't it? That's really what the gospel through God's church does. We can't expect people to want salvation if they're not convicted and convinced that there's something terribly wrong. It's really interesting, isn't it? Look at verse 16. It's interesting the way that Paul defines the gospel. On that day, he says, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. The gospel, Paul says, the gospel declares coming judgment. My gospel. The message that God gave me to herald and to proclaim across the known world that says this very thing, that a day is coming when God will judge the secrets of men by his son Jesus, even the secret things, even the unspoken things, the motives, the treacheries that you thought were safely hidden from sight, God sees all. And God, Paul says, will judge all. And you see, Paul's gospel proclaimed the judgment day so that salvation that is offered 
is salvation from this. It is salvation from the wrath to come. That's the gospel that Paul preaches. It's not being saved from an unhappy life, even if Christ makes happier people. No, the gospel, Paul says, the gospel is being saved from the day of wrath when God through Christ will judge the earth. Just think for a moment of that day. Think of what we read about in, in, in uh, that chapter in Revelation. When kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free. On that day they will hide themselves and they will call out to the caves and the rocks and the mountains saying, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and hide us please from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? You see, by and large, in the 20th century, we've accepted a gospel that preaches salvation, but it doesn't preach what we're being saved from. We have no orientation towards the day of wrath that's to come. And the Apostle Paul is adamant here. He's utterly convinced, knowing the terror of the Lord, he says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade others knowing that one day we must sit and stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we make this appeal. We implore you. We beseech you, be reconciled to God through Christ. And I'm convinced that until we get this gospel right, and until we see how large the day of the Lord looms, not only in, in, uh, in Paul, but across the scriptures, we may grow big churches, but they won't be filled with people who comprehend grace. They won't understand it, that God has saved me from the wrath to come. And without a strong grasp on grace, as John Newton writes, there's no fear. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Brothers and sisters, grace makes us tremble. Grace makes us fear God. Grace makes us the kind of people, as the Apostle John put it in his first letter, that we are so desperate to abide on him that when he returns, we may not shrink in shame from his coming. Beloved one, John says, beloved, abide in him, abide in him, so that on that day when your Lord returns, you may not shrink in shame at his coming. The gospel must have both halves or it's not the gospel. The gospel declares a savior. The gospel declares a terrible judgment to come. You know, given that it's, it's Reformation Sunday, I think if you think of the way that the reformers and their successors preached the gospel, the way they trumpeted its message. Even if you just look at the title of their books, you see what a great shift we've made. 
One of those Puritans is Richard Baxter. He's the theologian and the preacher that has had such a lasting impact on our own theologian, uh, J.I. Packer. And in one place where Packer deals with Baxter, he writes about this Puritan theologian. Packer says this, he says, get to know Baxter. Stay with Baxter. Baxter will always do you good. And when Spurgeon was a child, his mother read to him, this is little, little, little Charlie Spurgeon, he, she read to him, Baxter's call to the unconverted. I mean, do you ever wonder why Spurgeon was Spurgeon? You know, we let our kids watch Braddy Caillou. Spurgeon's hearing Baxter's call to the unconverted. And, and here in this book, Baxter describes the nature of the ministry of the church. And Baxter says this, he says, our commission as ministers is to offer salvation. We offer pardon full and free and glorious. We say to you, there's great mercy. It lingers for you. We say there's great patience. It waits for you. We say there's inestimable kindness that God has towards you. That's our commission. But we also have a message of wrath. And we have a message of death. And we will tell you nothing but the truth. For who will seek a physician unless they are convinced that they're sick and in great danger? On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. The gospel is full of mercy. The gospel is full of warning or else it is not the gospel. And what we get here in Romans 2 is Paul warning. Now we've already seen in chapter 1 Paul warning against the pagan sinners, that great catalog of vices. Paul has gone after the Roman Empire and all of their, all of their sin and all of their appetite for sin, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, he goes after them and he warns them. Last week, we also saw that Paul goes after the moral man. He goes after the philosophers and all those ethical purists. He goes after all those people who, who scan the Roman Empire and they look with shame and they look at disgust and they say, tisk, tisk, tisk. And Paul goes after all those who judge sinners from their high moral perch and he says to them, you do the same things. You do precisely the same things, though in a more discreet, in a more nuanced, in a more sophisticated way. And now in our passage today, Paul goes after the Jew who thinks that his lot is different from the common man. The Jew who thinks he's different from the pagan sinner Gentile. The Jew who thinks he's different from the Greek philosopher. Paul now sets his sight on these people. And there are three things that the Jew thinks will save him from the judgment to come. And I want to look at those three things briefly with you today. First of all, if you look at verse 12, the Jew thinks that his proximity to the law will save him. Well, I'm part of the people to whom God gave the law. We're special. We're not like Gentile sinners. He's not treated other nations like he's treated us. He didn't give them the law. We're the law's guardians. 
We're the law's stewards. We are the law's servants. And look at how the apostle responds to this. He responds by leveling the playing field here. First of all, he tells the Jews that they have more in common with the Greeks and the Gentiles than they think. Look at verse 12. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. You see what Paul's doing here? It's true, he says. You have the law, and they don't. It's true. You have the Torah, and they don't. You've got Ezekiel. You've got Jeremiah. You've got Moses. They don't. You're very different in that way from the Gentiles. But let me tell you what you have in common with all those people who don't have the law. You're both sinners. They sin without the law. You sin with it. And the Greeks are going to perish in their sin. And you Jews, he says, you who have the law, you are going to be judged. The judgment day is coming for you. It's all because of we see what we see in verse 13. Because it's not enough that you hear the law. It's not enough that you have the law. It's not enough that you write it on your foreheads and you put it on the lintels of your doors. It's not enough that you talk about it to your children and you go to the synagogue. It's not enough. You have to obey the law. And unless you do it, the law condemns you. The law is against you. And in fact, the closer the law is, the more accessible the law is, the fiercer the judgment will be. To whom much is given, much will be required. This is why Paul says judgment will come to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Why? Because they had the law and they knew better and they still sinned. So first of all, you're all sinners, he says. And secondly, you're wrong to think that the Gentiles are utterly without the law. Because even though they don't have Torah, verse 15, God has written the law on their hearts. This is the natural law. There's a moral imprint, God-given, inscribed on every human heart. Humans know by God's common grace that they shouldn't murder. Humans know that they shouldn't cheat on their spouses. They know that they shouldn't steal. And they didn't come up with that. They didn't drum that up. It's not Thomas Hobbes drumming up some philosophy. They didn't do that. God, Paul says, he put it in their hearts. And they may try to suppress that natural law, but it's there. And Paul says some of them, if you look at verse 14, some of them obey that law. Sometimes, not all the times, not all the law, but some Gentiles admittedly don't cheat on their spouses. Some Gentiles admittedly don't cheat on their taxes. Some Gentiles evidently tell the truth even when it hurts. Now all of this has to be read against the light of Romans 3.10. There is none righteous, 
Not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. But look at what Paul is doing. How he is undermining, how he is destabilizing the confidence of the Jews. He turns now to his fellow Jews and he says, don't think you're so special. Don't think you're so different. First of all, you're as sinful as they are. You have the law. The law is close to you, but you don't obey it. And the ones who don't have the law, they obey it just as often, if not better than you do. Those are very hard words for Paul to say. Very, very hard. You can understand why the Jews wanted to murder Paul. Martin Luther says the gospel is naturally most odious because it makes the first to be last. And this is exactly what Paul is doing. He's making those who think they're first, he's making them last. The gospel humbles and people will hate us for it. Paul is leveling the playing field. And he says to these fellow Jews of his, you must fear the judgment day as much as any Gentile should. You can't put your hope in your closeness to the law. Secondly, the Jew thinks that being a teacher will save him. Now this is verses 17 to 24. The Jews had elevated themselves, put themselves in this exalted place as instructors of the foolish, guides of the blind. They had the embodiment of the knowledge of truth and the law, and they felt that they were serving the world by propagating that truth. How could God not be pleased with them in that very noble and distinguished position, busy as they were teaching his word? Most of us know that saying, those who can't do, teach. And as Blackjack says in the School of Rock, those who can't teach, teach Jim. Uh, you know, of course it's not true. The maxim's not true. Jesus is the great teacher. Jesus is the great teacher, and Jesus can do all that he teaches. He can do it so very well. But in this respect, the little saying rings true. Those who can't do, teach. The problem is these Jews can teach, but they can't do. And God doesn't care so much about who can teach his word as much as he cares about who can do his word. And that's a word for all of us this morning. It doesn't matter what you can say. It doesn't matter what you can articulate. It matters what you can do. Actions speak louder than words. Paul says to the church at Corinth, I don't care what all these super apostles are saying. I don't care one whit what they're talking about. I want to know their power. That is, I want to know how they're living. I want to know what they do. And really here, it's all about persona. The Jews are putting their confidence in their persona. We have this important persona. We are teachers. We are leaders. But it doesn't matter what you're perceived as. 
It doesn't matter what your Facebook or your Instagram profile or persona is as you take a picture of your Bible in your quiet time and you spread it across to the world to show everybody how pious you are. It doesn't matter how much advice you give or how many people follow you or like you or how many books you write or how, you, how esteemed you are. It does not matter what your persona is. The only thing that really matters is when you are alone and when no one is looking. The only thing that matters is whether or not in that moment you long to honor God above all else and you will pay whatever it costs to bring honor to God. Who are you when nobody is looking? Forget about your persona. Forget about what you appear in public who are you when you are alone? And Paul says to these fellow Jews, he says, oh yes, your followers, they think very highly of you. You're highly esteemed in their eyes. You have a great public persona as a teacher, but what are you in private? You teach, but you do not do. You don't obey. Brothers and sisters, God does not care a whit about your public persona. He does not care about these things. He doesn't care about the outside of your cup that you present to everybody in your daily life. He doesn't care about these things. He cares about the inside. Who are you when no one sees? Because public persona can't save, as these Jews thinks it can. Finally, the Jews think that circumcision will save them, and these are our concluding verses today. The Jews had taken this important ritual, this important symbol and this sign, and they had divorced it from the spiritual reality that was the most important part. They put their trust in the sign rather than the signified. The thing that, the, that, that circumcision signifies is the work of the Spirit in the heart. It's the work of God by His Spirit putting to death, cutting off that which is fleshly and making alive what is godly and what is spiritual. And this isn't a New Testament thing. This is a Bible thing. It's across the Old Testament. It's all over the Old, Old Testament. And God is consistently saying to his people, you stiff-necked people and uncircumcised of heart, rend your hearts, rend your hearts. Don't be concerned about the ends outside. Get your hearts right. And God's plan for his people is not to trust an outward sign or symbol or ritual to save us. What matters, Paul says here, is the inward grace. What matters is what God is doing in the heart. Heart matters. It matters what you're doing before God in your heart. And we can all go through the motions. We can all go through the symbols. We can go through the acts of worship. We can rest in these exterior things and our hearts in the midst of that kind of activity can become barren and they become lifeless. And Paul isn't saying that circumcision was wrong. Of course it wasn't wrong. 
The outward sign and the outward symbol aren't wrong, but what's wrong is forgetting what the sign represents. What's wrong is forgetting what the symbol conveys to us. And that's where the problem lies. The Jews had disconnected circumcision from the life of God. And you and I can just as easily disconnect our worship from the Spirit of God. And all of us need to be of such a mind, whether it's you know, thinking about baptism or thinking about the Lord's Supper, or thinking about the sign of the cross, or kneeling in prayer, or whatever outward sign we can engage in, even if it's preaching itself, we should all be of the mind that we are through it all, craving the operation of the Spirit upon our hearts, crying out to God for more of His influence, crying out to God for more of His invisible grace, more of His power, more of His life, because that, Paul says here, is what it's all about. A true Jew... A true believer is one inwardly, he says. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the Spirit of God. All these things don't matter. What matters is that you are allowing the Spirit of God in your life. Brothers and sisters, you can get up in the morning at 5 a.m., every day and you can go through the ritual and you can read your Bible and you can cross yourself and you can say your paternoster and all those things and at the same time you are somehow fleeing from the Spirit of God and you don't know His power anymore. You don't know His presence anymore. And that is a dangerous, dangerous place. Paul says the life of a believer, it's a matter of the Spirit of God upon you. Knowing Him, opening yourself up to Him, not relying on the outward things. And God delivers us as a church from being so concerned with the symbol and the ritual that we forget that a real believer, a true Jew, is one inwardly by the Spirit and not by the code and not by the letter. And so may the word of God search us today, and may the word of God know us, and may the word of God see if there be any wicked way in us, and lead us in the way everlasting. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.